You're listening to a podcast from New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Um, we're, we are beginning in Esther uh, today, and so as you turn there, um, you can use the table of contents to find it if you want. The person next to you doesn't know where it is either, so just take your time finding it. Um, but as we look at this, um, it's, it's going to be a fun sermon series. Uh, at our church, we believe in expository preaching, which means that we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And, um, and, and we have been going through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to finish Mark. We're not quite done, but we're taking a summer break from Mark to go through the book of Esther. And then um, at the end of the summer, we'll pick up back in the Gospel of Mark right where we left off and finish that this year as well. Um, now, I'd recommend, church, that, that in the next week that you go ahead and read the entire book of Esther. It's 10 chapters. The 10th chapter is not even really a chapter. It's kind of like an appendix. Um, we're going to be in it for nine weeks. It's good to kind of get the whole story. Um, if you were like me um, growing up, you, uh, when you got sick um, and you didn't go to school, you watched The Price is Right with your Nana. Y'all remember doing that? Bob Barker like made y'all feel better. And, um, but when we got home from school, there was something sacred on the television um, called the soaps. Y'all remember these? There was a guy named Victor in one of them. I don't remember all the, you know, it, was, it was always just a, a lot of drama going on. And I remember Nana had to watch the soaps. It was a big deal. And um, Young and Restless or Days of Our Lives, I can't remember which one she liked, but, um, but it, was, it, you know, it was a big deal. And, um, and as we look at Esther, it's kind of like the soaps. It's, it's you know, there's... There's some love going on, there's some drama going on, there's some murder going on, there's all kinds of craziness happening, and, um, and noticeably missing from the book is Jesus, is God. Um, it, it's actually um, been um, a source of con contention in hit church history because people thought that it shouldn't be in the Bible because there's no mentioning of God in it. The author is unknown. Um, now, the, author, the authorship issue was, I think, settled by Jesus. He believed that it was part of the Bible. Um, as in his ministry, he affirmed the Old Testament. It was already translated into Greek at the time that Jesus walked on this earth. It was canonical to early Jews um, as well as Jesus. And as a church, we've been, we've been going through different Old Testament books. Leviticus uh, was, was a profound and good sermon series for our church. I know it was tough for you guys to walk through that with us, but it, Leviticus became one of my favorite books in the Bible. And the day that we all locked down and got quarantined was the day in Leviticus we were talking about Levitical quarantine. Like, God plans our preaching, right? So, um, so he was in charge of that. And after we finished Leviticus, we did a video series in the book of Daniel. Now, at the end of Leviticus, there's a, a covenant given by God to his people that, that they're going to honor Sabbaths. And if they don't, then God is going to allow them to be taken into exile until the land gets its Sabbaths. And that happened most literally in Daniel. Uh, the people were exiled. Uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel's life is lived in exile. And um, it's a 70-year exile. And at the end of that 70 years, um, the, the kings, the, the, the pagan kings, allow the Jews to begin to return uh, to Jerusalem. You see this in books of like Ezra and Nehemiah as they rebuild the wall and return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now, this is the time period that Esther happens. Um, so the return of Jews is granted to Israel, Jerusalem, their homeland, but they had, they had lived their entire lives. This generation had lived their entire lives in this foreign land. Um, and so it was, as you would imagine, not everybody wanted to pick up and move. They'd lived there their entire lives. And so some of the Jews remained in Persia as Ahasuerus reigns. Now, the time of uh, the events 
in the book is that inter-exile period. Before the full return, a lot of Jews had left, but by far not all of them, maybe not even a majority of them. So we're looking at 4th century B.C., and that's when this soap opera occurs. I want to illustrate it this way. If you could imagine, um, I keep my keys on my hip here. If you could imagine if I brought Pastor Jeremy on stage, I'm not going to because he would hate that. But if I brought him up on stage and I told him, um, hey, Jeremy, I know you trust me. These keys are always going to be in front of you. And I proceeded to take one of your face masks and put it over his eyes, and he couldn't see him anymore. Well, I, was, I told you, Jeremy, that these keys are always going to be in front of you. One thing he might be able to do is hear it. He could hear the keys jingling. So even though he couldn't see him, he could hear the keys. And so he'd know, yeah, the keys are still in front of me. Well, if I stopped moving them and I told him, Jeremy, the keys are still in front of you, maybe he would, if he couldn't see him and he couldn't hear him, maybe he would reach out and touch him. And even though he couldn't see or couldn't hear, he could still feel them, right? The keys are still in front of you. But if I step back from him out of arm's length, which isn't very far for him, but if I step back to where he couldn't reach the keys and said, Jeremy, I told you the keys are still in front of you. He can't see them, he can't hear them, and he can't feel them. That's when faith is tested, right? And, and, and it's the same way with the Lord, that there are times in your life where you won't see him, you won't hear him, you won't feel him. And, and in a book like Esther, where it's, it's just painfully obvious, it feels like he's absent, the people of God are saying, is he still there? Faith is being tested. And what we see in Esther is the providence of God that while his name is not mentioned, there are no names for God listed in this book. There are no prayers to God in this book. There is no reference to the word of God in this book. And there's not even a reference to the house or temple of God in this book. But in all of those circumstances, we see God providentially moving in the story of Esther. Amen. And like the keys, when God seems most absent, silent, or out of reach in your life, he is still there. And this is the lesson that, that you need to keep in the front of your minds as we go through Esther, that, that he is there all the time. And let me show you three things in chapter one. We're going to see the pride of a king and the fall of a queen. And then lastly, the unseen king. Um, we look at these three things as we kind of set the, the scene or the setting for uh, the story of Esther. So first, let's look at the pride of a king. Now, in James's scripture reading, you heard the opening of the book of Esther. This king, Ahasuerus, he throws a six-month-long party to celebrate his own greatness. The setting is in Persia, um, which had recently conquered the Babylonian Empire. They were the new reigning empire um, in that uh, area of the world. Ahasuerus is a more Hebrew etymology. Um, historically, he's more commonly known as Xerxes. That's X-E-R-X-E-S. Um, so if you're going to look on Wikipedia about this guy, Ahasuerus is Hebrew. Um, you're going to look at Xerxes, his Greek name. But um, this guy, he's on, only on the throne for several decades. But during those decades, he is the most powerful man in the world. Now, this is, this, he is not like the king of Israel ruling a small nation. He's ruling an empire. He's not even like the president of the United States who is one of many rulers around the world. This man is at the top of the political food chain in his day. Ahasuerus, would, verse 1 tells us that he ruled over 127 provinces. The author is showing us the extensive reign of Xerxes. And he wants to brag about his reign, and so he throws a six-month party. And then after that six-month party, he throws a, an after party. Every good party's got to have an after party, amen? And so he throws another one for seven days. The writer moves on from his uh, party to his provinces to his possessions 
Um, but all of these things are rooted ultimately in his pride. In verse 6, you see this description of the setting of the party, the decorations, if you will. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. I don't even know what that stuff is, right? Like, I don't even know what's happening here, but it sounds expensive, right? It sounds like Martha Stewart on steroids right here. Um, I don't know what's happening, but I know that it's, it's fancy, all right? This is a high-end party. This is like, blame it all on my roots, I showed up in boots and ruined this black tie affair. There's, there's some fanciness going on here, okay? This beautiful description of the party is reminiscent of the description of God's temple, his tabernacle. If you remember um, in Leviticus, uh, the descriptions of the tabernacle as they would build it and, and construct a house of worship so people could gather and, and lift praise to him and offer sacrifices to him. There was meticulous a detail given in the writings to make sure that the ornateness of it reflected a holy God. It was a reflection of their king, Yahweh, and here Ahasuerus is wanting the best of the best things to reflect his reign. Now, while God's house had been destroyed in the conquer of Jerusalem, it lay in ruins at this time. This prideful king's house, however, is rivaling its glory. Now listen, Christianity will soon be a minority in the United States of America, and I would probably argue that it already is. And church, I, I need you to be prepared for that. I want you to think about the rest of your life, however many years you think the Lord will grant you before you're home with him and think about your children, your grandchildren. And I want you to think about the world that those that are coming behind us are going to come up in. It is becoming increasingly secular and rooted in pride that is not glory to God. And as we um, carry about this, I, want, I don't want you to be lulled to sleep by Satan believing that we are somehow a Christian nation. We are quickly becoming a people in exile that, that live under godless kings. I'll give you a real easy example. We're at the beginning of June. We just started Pride Month. And you see rainbows everywhere, right? That, that the world has taken something secular and contrary to God's word and celebrated all the while you see things like Easter and Christmas being downplayed. Our world will continually become secular. And the answer, by the way, is not your political reform. The answer is the gospel. The answer is not for you to argue with more people on Facebook over politics. The answer is you, for, for you to share Jesus with people that don't know him. To live like Esther and Mordecai, the people that we're going to hear about in this book, that live in a place that doesn't acknowledge or respect God, but they will honor God anyways. You see, the world's glory will continue to progress in a way that will glorify the things of man, but it will never be eternal. The things that the world glories will never be eternal, but God's glory is everlasting. And that's the kind of people we are. We're people of everlasting glory. We bring glory to God now, and we, in eternity, will bring glory to God. And at this climatic conclusion of a half year of bragging, like, who throws a six-month party? Like, I don't want to deal with people that long, and I'm an extrovert. <laughs> and this guy has a six-month-long party, 
And at the, at the seven day after party, he even gives directions on the drinks. At most parties, you kind of, you know, you have like a drink station and you just set out the drinks, right? You just kind of get what you want. Look at verse seven. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. No solo cups here at this shindig, right? And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. What that means is there's no obligation. What, what that indicates is that he probably had thrown some parties where you were forced to drink. You had to. The king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. What this shows us is that Ahasuerus is an extreme control freak. That he had to put it in writing, the drinking instructions for the people. He felt the need to tell them. And this pride and this sinful desire for control is going to overtake him. And what we'll see is the fall of his queen Vashti. So point two, the fall of a queen. We arrive at, at the culmination of Ahasuerus' display of power. And at the end of all of this, this six months plus a week, instead of his power de- being displayed, his weakness is exposed. Uh, we've got some volunteers here from RFK. We're thankful to have you guys join us for church today. I was telling some of our volunteers before church, don't be weird today, right? <laughs> We got company coming over. It's like, it's like you ever go, you ever go somewhere like with your with your spouse or with your kids, and you're just like, just be normal for like just a little bit. We're going over to these people's home. Um, you just need to be normal for a little while, um, and then they don't. And how embarrassing that can be sometimes, right? Um, Judah went to a doctor's or a therapy appointment recently and told the therapist that his mom works all the time and his dad doesn't do anything except hang out with his friends, eat chips, and play poker. I was like, jeez, i got to do some coaching with this kid before he goes to therapy. Um, Jeez, can you just be normal for one second, right? Uh, You know, you get embarrassed by that stuff. And, um, And Ahasuerus is like, all right, here's the culmination of everything. I've shown you all my fancy white curtains. I've shown you all the golden chalices. You know, it's like little John up in there. We're, we're displaying all this stuff, but now I'm going to show you the most beautiful thing. My bride, Queen Vashti. Uh, Vashti um, in, Persia, in the Persian language means the best or desired one, which probably indicates that that was not her actual name, but rather a title. Her name was just best. That's what they called her, the best. And he wants her to make him proud. Let's continue reading in verse 10. On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that means he was drunk, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, and the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. I want you to kind of just let that sink in for a minute. She was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, the Bible doesn't give us all the detail of why she refused to come. Um, Some scholars suggest that when it says that he wanted her to appear in her royal crown, that that he was indicating that he wanted her to appear in only her royal crown, meaning no clothing on. Um, regardless, whether he was calling for her to appear naked or clothed, whatever it was, it was with lustful intent so that these drunken men could look at her. It's disgusting. 
And what we, one side lesson that we learn from this text is that we need to respect women. We need to not treat women as just objects of uh, physical lust or attention. Rather, we need to honor them as those who are created in the image of God. And so what's going to be done about this? Vashti has refused to bow down to the chauvinism and uh, gross disrespect. And so let's continue reading. The king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The, next, uh, the men next to him being Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same thing to the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. This is like, all victory, you done messed up now. This is where the drama comes in at the beginning of Esther. Now, what you notice here is that all the characters after Queen Vashti is mentioned are men, right? All of them. Lots of chauvinism going on here. Now, let me be clear. The Bible does command wives to submit to their husbands. There's nothing wrong with that, and it is a God-honoring thing to do that. But the Bible never commands wives to, com to obey a husband's uh, call to sin, which is what, um, which is what Ahasuerus is doing here. But we, we may look at this and be proud of Vashti for standing up against this lustful uh, chauvinism. But I don't want you to make her the hero of feminism of the book of Esther. Matter of fact, I don't want you to make Esther that either. Uh, Vashti, she, we know from secular history, Vashti was a pretty awful person as well. Um, there's secular history of her torturing a woman in a jealous rage one time. Rather than looking at her as a hero of feminism, what I want you to do is look at what calamity can come about from the wrong crowds. When you get a group of drunk men together making decisions, that's not going to go well. I think that's what happens in Washington sometimes. Um, you have a feast, a party, a focus on pleasure. All those things are going to fall short and they're going to leave you wanting. There's three clear dangers here. Alcohol is the first one. I don't believe the Bible prohibits alcohol, but here it clearly tells us that these men are drunk. And they're making poor decisions in their drunkenness. We also see pride that all of this is kind of stemming from the pride of the king. That he's wanting to show off how his wife is the most beautiful and, and even allow these other men to lust after her. And really it's all rooted in joy in experiences rather than relationships. If I could exhort you with one thing today, be careful not to make all of your joy and happiness rest in the things you do, but rather in the people that you know. If all of your joy comes from just stuff that you do, I like to fish, I like to hunt, I like to play ball, I like to, I like to shop, I like to drink, whatever it may be. Like if all of it is just an experiences, that is short-lived and it is short-sighted of what eternity is going to be like. Because relationships are going to be in eternity. 
Let's finish reading the text. We see these bad decisions continue. If it pleased the king, here's his, the advice that goes to the king. Let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will be give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This law uh, or this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, uh, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. You see, this decree will set the stage for a better queen to be ushered in. Enter Esther next week. God is providentially orchestrating and setting the stage, stacking the deck, if you will, to make sure that a woman who honors him will be in the place of decision-making for the largest empire in the world. This decree will go forward and Vashti will not be mentioned again in this book. She will be exiled and they will search for a new queen and Esther will providentially fall into the right place. A woman who is a Jew, who is from the family of God, who has exiled and been born into exile and lived in this empire. A better queen will be ushered in, but what about a better king? I don't know if you noticed um, the title of the sermon series is The Unseen King. And that's point three of today's sermon. The unseen king of this whole sermon series in the book of Esther is named Jesus. His name isn't mentioned. He isn't prophesied of. But we know that from his passion and his revelation, his, his death on the cross, his crucifixion, his resurrection, that he is king and he always has been king and he always will be king. Amen. No matter who's on the throne in Persia and no matter who's in the White House in Washington, Jesus is king and the crown belongs to him. Jesus told his disciples after he rose from the dead, by the way, in Luke 24, 27, the begin, he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And in Luke 24, on this road to Emmaus, as he's speaking with the disciples, even if you read the verses following that, Jesus makes it clear that the entire Bible is about him. Means when you read Leviticus and there's blood everywhere and it's all weird and you don't understand it, it's about Jesus somehow. When you read Esther and you don't see anything about God, you don't see anybody praying, you don't see anybody reading the Bible, it's about Jesus somehow. That, that when you see prophecy in Isaiah of what the future is going to be like, it's about Jesus somehow. It finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. There's a, there's a, a, a key theme that, that you as Christians ought to read the scripture with called Christocentricity, that you read and interpret the Bible with Christ at the center of the lens that you look at it through. So ladies, let me burst your bubble right from the outset. Esther ain't the hero of this book. Ladies like to gravitate toward this, right? It's like Esther and Ruth, we're going to do a ladies Bible study and we're going to study Esther and Ruth again. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time, right? Esther is a great woman of God who is to be respected, but she's a jacked up sinner like all y'all too. And God uses her in spite of her flaws. We're going to explore that. You know who doesn't have any flaws? Our King, Jesus. What situation or circumstance do you find yourself in right now? Just think about it. What, what's stressing you out right now? What's worrying you right now? You think it's out of God's control? 
You think the, the, the Jews living in exile ever looked at the political situation and just felt like, man, the world is just out of control? I mean, we do that. We look at our, our nation. We look at the world. We do that. Are we guilty of, of forgetting that our king is sovereign and he reigns not over 127 provinces, but over his entire creation, not even just this planet, but all the universe? Ahasuerus would throw a party. Vashti would refuse. Esther would be chosen because of all that. Mordecai would be noble. Haman would be thwarted. The Jews will be saved, spoiler alert. And all of it is gonna just happen to fall into place. No, it happens because God is rigging the whole scene. He's making it all play into his plan. God is orchestrating every single soul, controlling circumstances. He's got the whole thing rigged for his glory throughout redemptive history. But we fight for control, don't we? Like a Hasuerus. We want to be in control of all of our lives and all of our decisions, but we are insufficient. You don't have control and you never want control because you're bad at control. I can't even, like, y'all, have y'all played Fortnite? I can't even control a Fortnite player. They can turn their head and move in different directions. In, in PlayStation 1, kids, listen to me. In PlayStation 1, you just ran the direction you looked. Your neck didn't move in PlayStation 1. Now these kids these days, you can run this way and look this way. I just can't, I can't control that. It blows my mind, right? God controls so much better than you. Yield control to him. Follow his plan for your life. Let me give you four things and then I'll try to, try to be done. I want you to look at these four things. Number one, look at the king's posture. These won't be on the screen, so if you're a note taker, just try to track with me. Number one, look at the king's posture. Ahasuerus is selfish. One king is selfish, but another king is sacrificial. King Ahasuerus treats his bride poorly in selfishness so he can bring himself glory, but the unseen king, Jesus, loves his bride how? Not selfishly, but sacrificially laying his life down for his church. That's what your king has done for you, bride. So we see his posture. Secondly, look at the king's reign. King Ahasuerus reigned extensively in the ancient world. Verse one says 127 provinces. The unseen king Jesus created every one of those provinces. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It is all his. We don't care what the deed says. We don't care where the borders are. It is all his. Number three, look at the king's temperament. King Ahasuerus is enraged with the slightest disobedience because his wife doesn't show up when he calls. The unseen king, Jesus, deals with our disobedience repeatedly, doesn't he? Yes. You fail your king over and over and over again, and I guarantee you, you have failed him miserably this week, and he still welcomes you into his presence with love and grace. Repeatedly, patiently, and graciously, your unseen king at times welcomes you into the throne room of prayer and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll take care of you. Even if you've been disobedient to me all week, I'll still be here for you because I'm a good king. Number four, look at the king's invitation. 
King Ahasuerus gave a six-month banquet. That's a long time. I never want to throw a party that long. We, matter of fact, we convince our kids to go to hotel rooms for their birthdays because we don't want to throw birthday parties. <laughs> he throws a six-month banquet, but the unseen King Jesus outdoes him, doesn't he? The Bible speaks of a lifelong banquet we call the Lord's Table, where the king's edict and Ahasuerus, he said, hey, there's, there's no compulsion. Jesus does the same thing, but in a greater degree. He invites you to his table where he says, this, this bread is my body, this wine is my blood. Come, partake, but there's no obligation. You see, you're under no obligation in Jesus' kingdom, but you are under constant invitation. You're always welcome. You're always invited. There is never compulsion on you. Rather, there is a loving king drawing you into himself. And so we're going to give an invitation right now, and it's not for all you people who might not know Jesus. The invitation is for those of you who do know Jesus to remind you as you come to the Lord's table today that your king has a table that he invites you to Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And it might feel repetitive, but it is a constant reminder to us that we are always welcome. That he gave his body and he shed his blood to pay for your sins, to ransom you, to give you a new name, and to put you in a new kingdom. To make you a citizen not of where you live, but a citizen of where you will live eternally in his kingdom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure to check out past sermons on the app.